This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather? With allergy tracking and fluid mapping. So you know when to stay inside and load up on podcast, As well as air quality and UV indexing. So you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello everybody and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the founder of Healthcare Voices, but also I've been a patient in the American healthcare system uh, because I was diagnosed with cancer about five years ago. And so I've gone through fighting for authorizations, uh, fighting uh, denials of care, and much more. And our experts are here to answer your questions and help you get the care that you need. So our first question is about uh, enrolling in health insurance. Uh, how do you enroll in uh, health insurance through the Affordable Care Act? Uh, open enrollment may be over, but who can still get enrolled? Uh, how do you sign up? And what do you do if open enrollment is over in your state? Uh, welcome, Zoid from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Uh, so, yeah, open enrollment is over in most states. Um, in some states, today is the last day. Um, so states that have their own state-based marketplace, so instead of using healthcare.gov, they have their own website. They often have extended um, open enrollment periods, so it's good to check in your state. If you're not sure if your state uses healthcare.gov or has their own um, website, go to healthcare.gov and type in your zip code and you'll know right there where you need to go. Um, so check that first, see if it's still open enrollment, because if it is, you still have time. Some states also are doing um, special enrollment periods um, because of the COVID pandemic, or if you've been affected by the pandemic, you lost your job, whatever reason, you can still enroll, um, even if it's outside open enrollment period. Other than that, um, if you're you know, not in one of those states, um, check to see if any of the qualifying life events apply to you. So those are things like losing coverage through your job or through Medicaid, um, moving. And so the insurance that you had where you previously lived doesn't work. Um, getting married and one of you had insurance you know, prior to getting married. Lots of things like that. So go look those up and check to see. Um, it's also worth it to check to see if you might qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid doesn't have any sort of open or special enrollment periods. It's just you can enroll if you're eligible all year round. Um, and also on the note of Medicaid, um, there are going to be a lot of folks losing Medicaid coverage over the next year. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, there is kind of an extended eligibility where instead of the normal process because um, where you are eligible for Medicaid and you get redetermined a year later to see if you're still eligible or need to be moved off. All of that got suspended due to the pandemic. Um, and those are going to start back up again. Um, states are gonna start the process in April. That doesn't mean everyone's gonna suddenly lose coverage in April, but that process will start again in April. And so it's good to make sure that all of your information is up to date with Medicaid if you're on it and losing Medicaid um, always, but especially in this case, um, means that you could now be eligible to enroll in the special enrollment period. Um, so there's lots of different options. Um, so go check those out. Thanks, Zoid. And open enrollment for Medicare Advantage is still going on. So when does that end and who's eligible? Uh, what should you be doing now if you have a Medicare Advantage plan? 
Welcome, Diane from Just Care and Social Security Works. Thanks, Laura. Uh, yes, Medicare Advantage Open Enrollment is happening right this minute um, and continues through the end of March of this year. And what you should be doing to make sure that you're going to be able to see the doctors you want to see at a price you can afford and get the drugs you need at a price you can afford is comparing all your Medicare Advantage options because last year was one thing and this year is another. Things really can change dramatically. So it's really important to look at those options carefully and you can switch over to another Medicare Advantage. The issue for a bunch of folks though is that there are bad actors in Medicare Advantage. We don't really know how many there are, but we know about widespread and persistent delays and denials of care in some Medicare Advantage plans. And so anyone in Medicare Advantage needs to be avoiding those plans. And the government is not signaling which ones those are. In fact, some of them could easily have four and five star ratings from Medicare, which is really troubling. So one thing you might consider that you can also do during this Medicare Advantage open enrollment period is switch to traditional Medicare. And uh, lots of people tend to do that, especially when they get sick, because their out-of-pocket costs can be significantly less in traditional Medicare if they get sick, uh, so long as they have supplemental coverage. And as Zoid mentioned, uh, there are a lot of people who may be eligible for Medicaid who aren't aware or who have Medicaid who may not know um, that it serves as supplemental coverage in traditional Medicare. So if you have Medicare and Medicaid, uh, you are set and are protected in traditional Medicare from serious out-of-pocket costs. Uh, your out-of-pocket costs should be minimal. Uh, but if you don't have Medicaid, um, you might still be eligible for what's called extra help, which is um, through a Medicare savings program, which you're eligible for through a Medicaid office. Uh, you can get extra help with your Medicare premiums and cost sharing, which can be phenomenal. And that's if your income is higher than the Medicaid eligibility levels. So that's also worth really checking out. The issue, though, for some people moving into traditional Medicare is they may not be able to buy supplemental coverage in the individual market if they need it. And so if you're thinking that you want to switch to traditional Medicare so that you can be sure to be able to see the doctors you want to see when you want to see them without an insurer coming between you and your doctor, um, you want to make sure that you can get supplemental coverage before you switch to traditional Medicare. Now, so I'd also mentioned there are exceptions uh, for people who are not Medicare eligible. There are also exceptions in terms of the right to get Medicare supplemental coverage if you have Medicare. There are few and far between, but one is if you're moving. So if you're moving, you can always switch out of your Medicare Advantage plan and you always have a right to buy Medicare supplemental insurance. Great. Thank you, Diane. Our next question is from Carol, uh, who says that my transgender daughter is trying to find a place to start hair removal since it's now covered by insurance. However, we're finding difficulty in uh, finding a, a place where she can get it done. When she reached out to her insurance representative, there wasn't anything in the system telling her where to go. Uh, any help or direction you can provide would be greatly appreciated. Soy? Yeah, this is a, a really great question. Um, I'm really glad you're you're trying to help your daughter through this. Um, so it's it's hard to offer. Very 
very specific advice without having a location. But in general, what you're looking for um, for laser hair removal is a dermatology clinic that does electrolysis. Um, and so you'll want to look for clinics like that in your area. You can also search for any um, gender health, transgender health clinics in your area. They might be um, part of a university or they might be standalone. Often these places might offer services like this, or if they don't offer those services, they can direct you on where to go. Um, and then after you've found places, you'll want to call them and ask if they can work with your insurance. It's usually best to go to the place and ask them if they take the insurance and if they can bill through that or what their process is, rather than going to your insurance company and asking them what clinics to go to. Um, it's sounds silly, but oftentimes your insurance actually doesn't know all the clinics that um, take it. Um, so that's possibly why they didn't find anything or they may have been searching under the wrong category. Thanks, Zoid. Our next question is from Trish, who says that I keep getting what appear to be scam calls from Medicare from all over the US. Uh, can you put a stop to this? Uh, Diane, can you tell us what's going on and is there anything Trish can do about it? Really good question. Our robocalls are out of control on pretty much every topic, but Medicare is one area where uh, we are seeing just enormous amounts misleading marketing um, on the television and through the phones. Uh, you certainly have an ability to block your calls. Uh, you can Google how to do so specifically, but there are ways to block robocalls um, by going online and um, you know hitting a couple of buttons, you should be able to figure that piece out. But the bigger problem is that people are called and they're told that they are that the person on the other end of the line is somebody from Medicare. Or it sounds like that person is from Medicare and wants to help them out. And in fact, that person wants them to buy insurance or some insurance product that they don't need or maybe shouldn't be getting and can be seriously um, misled or could give information about themselves um, that they shouldn't be giving over the phone. So I guess my only other piece of advice right now is that if anybody calls you and says he or she is from Medicare, uh, do not believe that person. Medicare doesn't make calls to you. Uh, you will not receive information from Medicare via the phone. And the, Whoever is on the other end may be trying to get your social security number, your Medicare number, which is now different, um, or any other personal information that can be used to access your bank account and other you know, private uh, information that you do not want to be sharing. So do not talk to anybody who calls and claims to be from Medicare or anywhere else. Um, say that you're going to call back. If you really think they're credible, say you're going to call back. And even if they sound like somebody you know, uh, the robocalls or the, the ability of the companies to use misleading voices and whatnot to get people to take action that they shouldn't be taking is really unbelievable. And you should say, I'll call back and call um, with somebody by your side if you decide to call back, but do not trust a call from someone saying they're from there. Thanks, Diane. And hopefully this is something that Congress or states can take action on in, uh, in getting rid of these misleading calls. 
you would hope, but it doesn't seem like it after all these years. Our next question is from Pamela, who wants to know, are tiered insurance policies legal if a company is self-insured, meaning they are their own health insurance provider? Zoid? Yeah. So if I'm reading this question correctly, um, we're talking about um, if an employer is essentially offering different benefits for different classes of employees. So, So the short answer to this is maybe. Um, it, you know, it really depends on a lot of factors. So first of all, it depends on how they're separating out their employees. So whether it's, um, self-insured or, um, fully insured, um, they can't use anything other than the IRS classifications. Um, so this is like full-time, <laughs> sorry, my dog, uh, this is like full-time and part-time exempt, non-exempt, things like that. Um, It also depends on the size of the employer. Rules in general are a lot stricter for employers that have 50 or more full-time equivalent employees. That that phrase full-time equivalent, that doesn't mean 50 full-time employees, it means the equivalent of, so essentially the the correct number of working hours, um, whether it's between full or part-time. And then it also depends on the state. So there's the federal law, which a lot of it just kind of comes down to the IRS, as well as a few, fee, a, a, a few key federal laws um, like the ACA. Um, but every state also is going to have different um, labor laws. Um, so it, it really depends on a lot of factors. It's kind of a, a hard um, question to answer, but maybe. And it's, it's a good thing to look into if you're concerned about your employer or another employer. Thanks, Zoid. And now uh, it's our chance to listen to our special guest. Uh, welcome, Mia Ives Rubley, the director for the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. And she will be talking about their latest report uh, on unnecessary barriers to social services for the disability community and also what we can do about it. Welcome, Mia. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, glad to talk about uh, administrative burdens. Our piece um, is titled How Dehumanizing Administrative Burdens Harm Disabled People. And we released it, uh, uh, I believe, a couple months ago. Um, and it's a report that basically defines what administrative burdens are and then talks about uh, the different types of categories. Uh, we've split it up into three different types of categories for administrative burdens. And then we try to talk about some of the solutions around how to um, uh, reduce the burdens that are are out there. And so I guess the biggest question is, what is an, what is an administrative burden? And so an administrative burden is any sort of type of challenge that makes it difficult for someone to access or maintain assistance for which they would otherwise qualify. So it's an extra step or um, qualification or documentation that an individual has to utilize in order to be seen as eligible for service, even though they, they Um, are definitely eligible for. So this can be for anything really around services for uh, and services and programs for disabled people and people with chronic illnesses um, and and people without disabilities also face burdens. Um, But we really tried to focus on 
how much it really impacted people who already faced huge challenges um, due to medical illnesses or or other barriers that they face in their everyday life and how um, cumbersome this can be and and really keeping eligible people out of the programs that they're eligible for. So the three there's three different categories of administrative burdens um, or, or sort of costs uh, that administrative burdens um, create. So one would be a learning cost and that would basically be something that um, made a system or um, a program so complex that it's hard for individuals to understand how to actually apply and stay eligible for. So a lot of times when people talk about this, they talk about things like Medicaid or uh, SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, or SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance. All of these programs require multiple steps for individuals to have to take in order to be uh, eligible and to maintain eligibility. And one of my good friends uh, was on SSI and Medicaid talks a lot about sort of the cost that SSI has, where it's almost like you have to be a lawyer or have an advance to be able to apply and become eligible for these programs. So that's a learning cost. There's also things like psychological costs um, or, or specific health impacts that stress, stigma, and lack of autonomy that come with navigating these specific programs. These administrative processes cause significant stress. And we have seen issues where people report um, declining health um, going through these processes. And uh, we've seen studies that show that people have um, have died by waiting to try and get on services or programs. Um, so there's definitely psychological costs uh, to trying to be eligible for these services. Lastly would be a compliance cost, um, which would be how do you maintain compliance or how do you maintain being able to be on a program? And this can be a time suck. It can be an energy suck. It can be money that uh, costs to be able to get the evaluations, et cetera, and be able to transport yourself to the doctors or to the lawyers or to the offices. Um, so these are all different ways that uh, people can be impacted by administrative burden. So um, what can be done about this? You know, what what can or should we be doing so that it's easier to access uh, help if you uh, are eligible for it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that a lot of people don't know that there are different steps that you can take um, uh, to try and help push for change. Uh, there are a couple of pieces of legislation that are, are being tossed around up on the Hill um, federally. Uh, this can include things like improved data sharing and automation, uh, decreasing the um, administrative burdens around supplemental security income, SSI, um, so that there's no longer asset limits, which asset limits how much you can own um, monetarily. 
Um, a, a lot of these require a lot of um, uh, documentation that can be easily, um, people can easily forget their documentation to prove that they are still eligible for services because they've paid a specific amount of money for um, services, but they forget to document it. Um, and so that they go over the asset limit and that can cause issues. Um, so I really suggest that folks keep an eye um, on organizations that are working on um, passing legislation around this uh, and, and also write to their Congress uh, representatives to state that they want them to support things that decrease administrative burdens um, particularly if you are an individual that receives these services and are affected by these burdens. There's also other ways that you can um, push back. Um, administrative changes, which are basically changes that are done by either the departments that are in charge of specific programs or the White House, um, they may put out things like requests for on specific policies. And it's great to um, submit your own personal statements. A lot of people think that it's just organizations that are submitting what we call RFIs or requests for information. Um, you can go on to the governmental website for RFIs and um, actually search for specific um, uh, policies that affect specific programs and write um, about your experiences with the program um, and how a specific policy change would impact your um, your experiences. Um, and that has uh, brought changes like no wrong door policies, which means that you can apply um, for a service in one area and it will um, send that application to other services that you may be eligible for. Um, we've seen that for things like um, the Open Healthcare Exchange, where um, if you apply there, um, sometimes it will submit your application to Medicaid, and Medicaid will do an automatic review to see if you may be eligible for their program. Um, so these are all extremely helpful uh, ways that you can... Um, push back and, and help decrease these burdens on, on individuals who are already um, significantly challenged, whether monetarily or energy-wise. And so hopefully Congress does something to make it easier to apply for these various programs. But uh, given today the barriers there are, uh, if you think you might be eligible for SSI or SSDI, uh, should people contact a lawyer? Should they try to navigate applying themselves? Um, I think it, I think it sort of just depends on how much energy and time you have. Um, if you're an individual who is pretty well organized and an individual that has a lot of, um, executive, uh, functioning, you may be able to apply on your own and, and try that way. The only reason why I say that is particularly if you're getting SS or applying for SSDI or social security disability insurance, um, a lot of the back money that you would be owed um, if you are made eligible would go to the lawyer um, up to $6,000. Um, so you can save money that way if you have the time and resources to be able to do that. 
Um, if you are an individual that may not have that time or ability or energy, um, you know, sometimes it is just easier to talk to a lawyer, um, particularly somebody who has a record of helping individuals get through uh, their cases and then making sure that um, they don't require money up front. And if you've been denied for something that you believe you should have access to, whether it's uh, SSI, SSDI, uh, or another program. Uh, so if, if you get a denial in the mail at mm-hmm. that point, maybe does it make sense to talk to a lawyer or can you appeal yourself? You can appeal yourself. Um, it is um, it is hard to go through the appeals process because it requires much more documentation um, and reasoning on why you disagree with the decision um, that they make. So I I would suggest um, talking to um, either a case manager or or a lawyer, um, depending on the resources that you have available in your area. Um, There are some uh, case managers who will take up your case and do it without um, you requiring to get a lawyer. So um, I would just look up the resources within your um, location to, to see what you need to do next. And can legal services or legal aid maybe be of help too? Um, again, uh, some of it just depends on the services. There's not a lot of programs that provide legal free legal aid for um, SSDI um, at, to try and get it. So um, it's most likely that you would go through a disability insurance, uh, disability lawyer. And uh, so just just to clarify for our audience, what's the difference between SSI and SSDI? Because people may yeah. not know if they're eligible for one or the other or both. That's a great question. And you can be eligible for both. It just depends. So um, SSDI is for individuals who have a certain amount of work credits. That means that they've worked for a specific amount of time for a specific amount of money um, and have paid their taxes on on that work. So um, individuals who have that amount of time and credit, which you can definitely talk to Social Security about, um, whether you do have enough, because it really depends on the job that you're doing. If you're a contract worker, you may not be eligible. Um, so it's really important that you talk to um, uh, Social Security about the differences. But generally, you you apply to, to a general program. I mean, you just generally apply to Social Security, and they'll help decide sort of which program you're eligible for. Um, SSI, Supplemental Security Income, is a program where um, you are eligible based off of your disability, and you may not have um, the work credits that um, are required for SSDI. Um, Also, uh, as another colleague has just stated, um, SSDI, you can be eligible based on your spouse's work credits as well. You can also be eligible based on your parents' um, work credits as well. So if you're a child of somebody who has died um, but was on SSDI, you can be eligible that way as well. Um, And um, I believe SSI, you can be eligible based on your parents' uh, eligibility of SSI. Um, So it's mostly based on sort of how many work credits you have or how many your spouse or your parents' uh, work credits have. Um, 
if you are eligible for SSDI and you have enough work credits, but you aren't receiving that much money because um, you maybe your wages were extremely low, maybe you were um, receiving uh, below minimum wage or um, at minimum wage, you may also be eligible for both SSDI and SSI. Um, so it, a lot of it varies on on how much um, work credits and how much uh, pay that you um, are are um, or have done in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have to go through the hoops of uh, being able to uh, register, which as your report talks about is hard. I was going to ask about having your treating physician help uh, describe your disability and justify your disability as a way that's low cost, as opposed to needing a lawyer um, that might be helpful. I know that social security has been benefits. Yeah. Some of it, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about um, your current treating doctor um, and how much medical information that they provide. You want to have as much information as possible to give um, to the uh, provider. I even suggest going to vocational rehabilitation and seeing if you can get documentation mm-hmm. from them because mm-hmm. you can get evaluations from them on whether you can uh, work. And if they state that you have significant um, issues around working, um, that can a- actually help your case. Um, but there, um, some of it just depends on the caseworker, you may be referred to another evaluation from a doctor that is uh, contracted through um, Social Security. And that can actually be a detriment to you because they don't know your case. They don't know your case history. Um, So there's benefits and risks to um, relying on the doctor. Um, But if your doctor has experience with working with individuals who are on SSI or SSDI and have experience writing notes for that, that's always going to be helpful for you. But you basically want them to describe in detail what are the reasons of why you can't work um, for an extended period of time. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Mia. Uh, and we will certainly cover SSI, SSDI, and how to gain eligibility, uh, in future episodes. So, uh, if people want to find out more about your work and stay in touch with your disability justice initiatives, uh, is there a website they should go to? There is. You can go to the Center for American Progress. Um, we have all our reports there. Just go uh, look for disability and our reports come up. If you want to follow us on social media, you can look up CAP Disability or you can look up See Me A Roll, S-E-E-M-I-A-R-O-L-L. Those are all easy ways to get in contact or touch with us. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please keep calling and texting in your questions, and we'll answer them in future episodes. This is Care Talk.